2: this is wheel bearings i'm dan roth
3: and from santa clara california this is sam abu Samid.
2: i'm really sorry you had traveled to california in february well, march well actually it's not really
3: much uh, better weather here than it was back in michigan i mean it's been you know it's been in the 50s in michigan through most of february anyway so
2: yeah uh, yeah i mean that's the one one little bit of solace i'll take from it is that uh the weather for the rest of the globe has seemed rather temperate but um we'll we'll get to that that's actually part of what we intend to talk about in some way yeah uh, kind of uh this evening but uh let's start with what we're driving and other than the airplane you flew out there uh, (laughs) not you personally but you flew in out there um I'm assuming that was something like an A320. Uh, no,
3: 757. Delta runs uh, 757s between uh, uh, Detroit and uh, most of the West Coast cities uh, to L.A. and um, San Francisco.
2: Huh. All righty, then. Most of what we get out of Boston is Airbus yeah. JetBlue. Well, you
3: know, they're, they're not they're not actually any roomier for the most part, because all of the the Boeing single aisle jets are all based around the same um, fuselage diameter. So they're all basically the same. They're all the same width. And, you know, you have the same level right. of discomfort back in steerage same, class,
2: same sausage, different lengths, right? I
3: Pretty guess. much. Yeah. yeah. Different size engines, but you know, so they have different ranges, but uh yeah, from, from the, from the economy passenger seat, there's no real difference.
2: All right. Well, let's talk about cars instead then. Uh, okay. You've had a Kia Optima hybrid.
3: Yeah. Um, You know, I, I like the Optima a lot. Um, you know, it's a it's a really nice car. And I've previously driven the uh uh the plug-in hybrid version. Uh and I've or or no, maybe I drove the plug-in hybrid sonata. That's it. Yeah, I've had the plug-in hybrid sonata.
2: I mean kind of the same thing.
3: Yeah, well, I mean it's it's the <laughs> same powertrain. The only difference between the plug-in hybrid and the, the, the regular hybrid for the Sonata and the Optima is the battery size. Uh it, and the fact that you get a plug, uh, so the the plug-in hybrid versions have a it's about like about a nine point four kilowatt hour battery gives you about twenty seven miles of electric range. This one, um, you know, is the typical one point four kilowatt hour battery. Uh, so you still get most of your trunk space, and um, there's no plug, uh, but you know it'll do easily do you know mid thirties to mid to upper thirties fuel economy uh in combined driving and you know i i never actually got a chance to drive the first generation sonata and uh, optima hybrid uh which ran from like 2011 through 2015 i think um i know that there were some complaints about that version uh it wasn't as smooth as as some of the other hybrids uh, from what i'm told
2: uh, yeah but i mean that was that it, was my impression of it was it just wasn't as it didn't feel quite as as finished, I guess. But the the new ones, on the other hand,
3: much uh, better. Yeah.
2: Yeah, they're very good.
3: Yeah, you know, so they've got uh, more powerful electric motors, and um, Hyundai and Kia have uh, an interesting plug-in hybrid or an interesting hybrid uh, powertrain architecture. So, you know, with uh, the Toyotas and the Fords, what they have is a, a system that has two motors integrated into a transmission unit with um, a planetary gear set and one of the motors is tied to the planetary gear set and you know by controlling that motor generator um, it provides you know if you know how a planetary gear set works you you've got three elements the ring gear the planet gears and the sun gear which is the one in the middle and you have to lock one of those elements in order to move anywhere and depending on which one you lock it changes the Uh, the effective ratio uh, and also can give you reverse gear. So um, what, you know, what those systems do is they use one of the motor generators to give you essentially a variable ground or a variable lock. And it creates, you know, what, what's uh, an electronic continuously variable transmission. So they use that for blending the electric drive and the, the torque from the engine. Hyundai and Kia have a different setup which is more similar to what you find on most of the European hybrids, where you've got an electric motor that is sandwiched between the, um, the end of the crankshaft and the input of the transmission of a conventional six-speed automatic transmission, uh, basically where the torque converter would normally go. And then there's a clutch on either side of that that um, or actually sorry, just between the, uh, the clutches between the there's only one clutch between the engine and the, the motor that lets you disengage the engine and drive on electricity alone. Uh, and then what they, one thing that's interesting as well, that, uh, they do a little differently from most of the others, most, most hybrids use the electric drive motor, uh, to actually do the start stop functionality. Um, and Hyundai and Kia use a belted starter generator, uh, to start and stop the engine so that it runs separately, um, and can, um, What that'll allow you to do is actually launch with electric drive and get going with the engine turned off. And then they separately launch the uh, the engine uh, using the belted starter generator and then engage the while the clutch is disengaged. And then they engage the clutch. And it's actually working really smoothly now uh, to give you really seamless performance. um, Yeah. So you don't get any of the jerking that you used to get on older hybrids.
2: Yeah. And I find that that, uh, more conventional transmission in the Hyundai Kia cars is much more pleasing to drive. It just feels better from behind the wheel. It's, I don't know, it's just a more positive feeling, um, powertrain. And I think part of it is because it doesn't use a a CVT as a torque split device. They, they have a a more straight up feeling, um, setup. And I, I, you know, It was a big shift from the first ones that were a little bit disappointing. Like, yeah, it's a hybrid, but it was kind of like the Ultima hybrid. Like it's it's a hybrid. So you can have a hybrid badge, but it's not not really anything as as uh, good as the market leaders. Now, on the other hand, I I feel like it's a different flavor, uh, but it's certainly competitive with stuff like the Camry hybrid or the uh, Fusion hybrid.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I, I would class it as, you know, just as good, you know, perhaps not quite, yeah you know, actually I think it's, it's a, it's just about as efficient now as the, the Camry, um, you know, it used to be, you know, a few miles per gallon less, but it's, you know, it's, it's really good. I, I like it a lot. And then, you know, combine that with the Optima, which in itself is a really good mid sized car. You know, I, I, I think it's one of the best looking cars in the segment. Um, but you know i'm i'm quite partial to the current kia design language and uh so i mean it, it works for me uh it's very roomy inside um as is the sonata which it shares its platform with uh, so you know there's there's a lot to like about this car
2: yeah they've certainly come quite a long way even in just you know say, let's say five years with their hybrid stuff uh and you know, and say 15 with their entire car brand, yeah. <laughs> you know, that's, um, it's, yeah, I mean, it's almost-
3: you know, I remember, you know, in the mid nineties, when, when Kia first arrived in the U S market as a standalone brand, cause you know, they, they, they first came to America, uh, in the late eighties, uh, through Ford, you know, they supplied the, yeah. uh, the Ford Festiva, um, and, which was and, a, and it's then, a
2: Mazda. Wasn't that like a Mazda 121 or something?
3: Uh, yeah, it was based on the Mazda 121, um, but not built quite as well as a Mazda. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> and then the when when that one ran its course, they replaced it with the Ford Aspire, which was the next generation Mazda 121. Which and, we
2: called the x
3: Yeah, or or, you know, the 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 car for people who someday aspire to own a real car. Yes, um, there's so, that. <laughs> you know, let's let's just say that you know the Kias of that era were not cars to aspire to. Um, but
2: you know that's they learned they learned oh, volume manufacturing. You know, yeah. Um, I, I don't know if they. I mean, we'll get a little off track here, but I don't know if they were building from knockdowns or if they were you know putting up whole production lines. I no, really
3: they had they, they were doing full production lines. You know, so they they essentially had the the design licensed from Mazda um, and Ford was a. Uh, was an investor and you know, I can't remember exactly how much of a stake they owned in Kia in those days, but they, you know, they went to Kia and, you know, at that time uh, you know, they, they needed some um, high mileage cars, cheap high mileage cars in order to meet their cafe requirements. And, you know, Kia was able to provide them with that
2: huh sort of goes against the idea that uh, america's manufacturing sector was getting its lunch eaten by foreign automakers just because they wanted to infiltrate this market seems like there was one hand washing the other saying like we'll give you some money we'll teach you how to do this you give us some cars <laughs> yeah <laughs> but we can't pretty profitably build pretty much here.
3: Hmm. Uh, and you know in those days you know the korean market was very different than it is today oh, yeah. um, korean automakers or uh, auto workers were not getting paid nearly what they they got today um you know the quality of the vehicles was not nearly as good you know the the, the korean auto industry you know in those days was still relatively young uh you know as a, as a standalone industry and they had a lot to learn about being competitive in the global marketplace and You know, certainly, you know, by the late 90s, um, you know, Kia had gone through bankruptcy and uh, Hyundai had acquired a controlling stake in the company. You know, Daewoo, you know, had gone bankrupt and GM essentially took them over. Um, And, you know, even Hyundai barely survived, you know, and they, you know, they went through a lot of quality issues here in the U.S. um, But they learned from that and they got a, a lot better. And, you know, they are. You know, easily fully competitive today in the segments they compete in. You know, the the one the one area where you know uh, Hyundai I think is struggling a little bit right now is just and not necessarily being in the in the segments that they need to be in. You know, as far as where the market is going. You know, in some of the um the crossover, you know, some of the small crossover um, SUVs, they you know they need to get some additional product there to be competitive, but you know, as far as the products they're making are all really good, you know, good, good value, good quality and good performance.
2: I mean, it's been breathtaking to watch if you actually just sit back and look at how quickly it's happened. Uh, and it's 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 funny because uh, it's almost like a textbook example of some Marxist theory to get really geeky for a moment um, where, you know, each each developed nation, y- you've developed your, uh, industries and you know the workers can only buy so much and so that you're left with that surplus and this the surplus has to go somewhere so you find another nation to purchase your surplus but in doing that you wind up developing their economy and then you know they wind up with a surplus and so <laughs> like that's that's exactly what's going on. You know, like Korea has certainly developed their economy over the last 20 years to the point where they're they're very competitive now and they're they're starting to becoming on par with with longer established uh, manufacturing powerhouses, so it's just it's interesting to watch and just think about and scratch our heads and yeah, um, we are, we are not the um, Econo Bearings uh, <laughs> podcast, so I can't say I fully understand it, but um, it's it's again just a point of interest, I suppose. Uh so what, so, what about yeah. you? What do you got? Um, I have been driving the Fiat 500 X Lounge All Wheel Drive. <laughs> um and i <laughs> well, i like it quite i mean i i find that to uh, be a, course, a
3: particularly I amusing like i find that to be such an amusing uh trim level name for that vehicle because you know it's it's a small crossover you know and to call that a lounge you know just seems bizarre
2: yeah well i mean, i think that fits in with fiats. I don't know their botched brand launch here, but they tried to have sort of what pop and lounge and just these fun brand names, almost a little mini esque in that, in that sense um, lounge is like, it's a trim level, I suppose, um, or like a package. I'm not, I, I went to the website the other day and was playing around with the configurator and it, it was a little weird, like, Oh, add lounge to it and you get all this stuff. Um, and that's really, it's kind of what it is. It's like a customer preferred package that, is kind of expensive, but I mean, I I like it because it's a $33,000 500 X. So, I mean, I should like it at that point. It's, it's filled up to the brim with options and uh, luxury features. Um, But at its core, you know, the 500 X is a lot more charming than it's most direct competitor, the, the mini countryman. Um, And I think that's probably just because it's a bit more honest, you know, it's still got a bit of design flair for sure, but it's, it's more confident, I guess, in its personality. If we're going to start anthropomorphizing cars, um, the, you know, the mini seems to always be a little bit more showy, a little more self-aware, like needs sort of constantly to be shouting like, look, I'm a mini, I'm a mini, I'm a mini. I do these mini things, uh, with a 500 X definitely has some personality to its design, but at it, at its core, it's the, the form doesn't get in the way of the function as much. Um, I, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Uh, and certainly with the 500 X, like at thirty three thousand dollars, not a great deal. Uh, you're in pretty heavy uh, crossover territory there. Um, you know, it certainly has a style all its own. But you, you know, thirty three large, you can buy a lot more functionality. Um, so you can get into the 500 X for a lot less. And it's most yeah, I mean, they start
3: at at twenty grand for the front wheel drive pop.
2: Yeah, and I, you know, I think that the all wheel drive is not necessary here either. You know, it's at least not this winter. <laughs> no, and I don't think any, like, it's basically a front wheel drive car, and that'll be fine in the winter if you put winter tires on it. Again, I'm just going to keep banging on that. Like, but I, I didn't feel that it necessarily needed all wheel drive at all. And I think actually the all wheel drive system just adds a little bit of weight and a little bit of complexity. And I got this weird resonance from though i i presume it was the all-wheel drive system you know it just started around 30 miles an hour and it's just sort of like sounds like it, it almost sounds like it hasn't shifted up yet you know uh and you see so you look at the tack and you're like nope we are not running the engine that fast what is that hum oh, and that's, that's odd because I when i when yeah. i
3: drove one last summer i did not notice that
2: okay so uh maybe that's just the one that i had it could be i i yeah, uh, that happens sometimes with press vehicles. They get abused. You don't say. <laughs> so, yeah, so maybe it's not. It's, but, you know, it was just something I noticed. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the biggest cost to this one is the lounge package. It's 5300 bucks. And, you know, the leather is nice. It, it looks good with the, the dark blue exterior that I think is part of the lounge um, trim. Uh, but, I, you know, I wouldn't ever pay money for the extra stuff it's bundled with. It has the lane sense system and the lane departure and collision warning. And I know that our feedback from our poll said that we complain about tech a lot, and that's probably me complaining about tech a lot, but it's...
3: No, we only complain about tech that doesn't work as well as it should.
2: Well, I mean, the tech works. That's not... It's just... It's aggressive, and it's annoying, and this is not a big car. You know, it's not hard to drive, and so the systems are, like, really... Touchy, and you know, on some of the roads here, you know, I go through the the rotary in Concord, Massachusetts, twice a day, and every now and then you get close to the lane markings, and it's it's nudging the wheel and stuff. And it took for, me a for while. those of
3: you that don't live in Massachusetts, that's what's what's known as a roundabout in other yes. parts of the world
2: it, or a traffic circle. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, it, so it was. But I think part of that is me. You know, like so, some people will actually pay extra for that because they want it, and I I understand that. Um, but I found it. To be a pretty aggressive system, not not aggressive to the point of like startling. It's quick to act and it does its thing. Uh, It's just not the kind of stuff I want to pay money for, Um, you know, and I understand it's designed to help and it it does meet that objective. Uh, So.
3: So let me ask, have you driven the Jeep Renegade?
2: Yes, I don't like the Renegade. I
3: you know, I mean the, the Renegade, if, if you're, if you want a small SUV that can, you know, that can have some real off-road chops, you know, the Renegade is, is probably the best option there, but I, I agree. I, I actually liked the 500 X much more than the Renegade. And, you know, they share a platform, um, you know, and the 500 is not going to have the kind of, you know, absolute off-road capability that you're going to get with the Jeep, uh, at least with the trailhawk version of the Renegade. <clears throat> but, um, you know, I, I, I actually found the the Fiat a lot more pleasant to drive, and I also like the way it looks better too, both yeah, inside I, and outside.
2: I completely agree with both of those, and you know, these are nobody's taking the Jeep off road either. You know, like, oh, that's, this that's is true. Just Almost it's no that one kind of car. Yeah. Um. So that's that's sort of a, like, yeah, all right, I guess it can do it, but you with the 500 X with all wheel drive is going to be more capable than most people are ever going to need, uh, anyway um you know the jeep to me just seems uh, again it's like overly cloying it draws too much attention to itself and it, it i don't it just doesn't work as well for me um you know the the 500x is just a nice balanced package and it you know it it does it rides well uh it's not too harsh it's not too floaty it handles pretty well it you know weight transfer is well managed so it's actually you know pretty fun to drive uh this one had the 2.4 liter engine in it. So it was not the most efficient. Uh if you really if you want that, you go with the front wheel drive with the turbo and the stick. Um but you know the nine speed auto is okay here. Uh there's not there's not a problem, you know, pulling the uh the steep overdrive with this engine on the highway. So I did actually manage to get about 70 miles an hour. It'll drop into ninth gear, especially if you do it manually. Um and this this time around this and the transmission didn't do Uh, it's shifted very smoothly sometimes in the past i've gotten this transmission in a variety of different fca vehicles and there's been some some weird shifting behavior um so i'm sure that there's been lots of software revisions i've i've tried this transmission since yeah they they come pretty
3: regularly for that nine speed
2: yeah um and so they're figuring it out um but yeah it's a it's a good car you know, and it—if you want some personality in your car, it's just go with the front-wheel drive one, and you—you know, you don't really need to spring for the leather. Again, it—it's nice, but it's not—not not really all that. I, I don't know. Like I don't think it's all that necessary.
3: Yeah, the—the uh, the one I drove. I'm just—I just looked up the review. Was uh, the trekking uh, with all-wheel drive, and it came to uh, just shy of twenty-nine grand with delivery. Uh, and you know, I—I I thought it had. You know everything that it really needed. You know, and like I said, I I like I like the looks of it. I think it's it's cute little vehicle. Uh, you know, and I you know as I described it, I, I thought it was the best of the best of the lot in the five hundred family.
2: Well, do you still feel that way now that the compass is based on it too?
3: Uh, well, I haven't driven the compass yet, so I I can't I couldn't tell you. Uh, but I mean, I'm I've just of of the the, the different five hundred variants. You know, the yeah. ba- the regular five hundred, the five hundred L. Um, and the, the 500 X, you know, I would, I would take a 500 X over either of the other two. Oh, isn't
2: the 500L <sighs> so I wasn't the 500 L terrible. It's
3: not even it. go there.
2: It's like, it's like a refrigerator. I,
3: I don't even know what they were thinking with that design, but I, yeah. Yeah. I mean this, this one, you know, they, they, I think they really got the design, right.
2: Yeah, it, it has, a, you know, a bit of a rake to its profile. It just it looks good without being overly cloying or anything. It's it, mm-hmm. it's well done. Yeah. Um, and it's it's a decent it's a decent platform, although, uh, you know, I there's certainly. I, I did notice that going in and out of the driveway, I could hear the, the door seals. Oh, really? Yeah. So, and sometimes I yeah. can, sometimes I can't not. Most cars will they'll flex a bit. Just the the way I, you know, you get them wound up with a very slow sort of thing, and you can you can drive it up an apron with one corner, and you can you can twist up the chassis a bit on any car. Mm -hmm. Um, But this one, I seem to notice a little bit of stuff shifting. But again, it's probably not the car's like endemic with the car. This is a vehicle that's been in the press fleet. It's probably been (laughs) hammered (laughs) upon.
3: Um, Somebody probably actually did try to take it off road.
2: Yeah, you know what's weird is I've. I've had a run of FCA vehicles, uh, in pretty quick succession. Like even, uh, this week, uh, they, they swapped out the 500 X for the challenger GT. Um, cause the last time I drove it, it was just at the launch event. So now I've got it for a week loan. Uh, I, I really like a lot of what FCA has. Yeah. Which I don't uh, know. You know, I've,
3: I've, I've enjoyed driving the vehicles, you know, based on, you know, some of the, uh, the various quality survey results I, i'm not so sure i'd actually enjoy owning one um, yeah
2: I, I hear that but I, the our grand cherokee's been pretty solid you know yeah. it's got a couple of recalls but it hasn't you know it hasn't had any bad behavior from any of those it's just it's on yeah the but list. i
3: mean which which car in recent years hasn't had a hasn't had a few recalls
2: yeah i don't know they all seem at pretty least for good takata drive, airbags for
3: sure. if nothing else
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that or some kind of weird electrical thing, because apparently uh, they can't figure out how to keep water out of electrical stuff. (laughs) Um, But, you know, every FCA vehicle I've had lately, you know, it drives drives well, like it it drives like it was tuned by people who understand how all those pieces work together. Um, You know, it just I don't know. They they have they have a group of people doing good stuff over there. Even if the cars are pretty old, you know, like the, the Challenger is ancient, but it it's it's a nice ride. You yeah, know? the 500 X is not the newest thing, you know, especially now as Mini keeps introducing new stuff. Um, but it, it's it's decent. So while I look over there and go, well, they've taken all kinds of stuff away from most of the car lines, and most of the and, and sales numbers came out today too, and it, it's just I don't know. Not everybody's doing all that well. I won't say that they're not doing all that well, but numbers are down. Actually, this month, uh, you know, kind of for all all automakers. And you look at at Chrysler, and it's like, well, each of their brands has like one product that carries most of the rest of the brand, except for Jeep. Jeep has a couple, but
3: yeah, I mean, you know, Jeep's got Wrangler and Cherokee and, and Grand Cherokee.
2: Yeah. So I'd be inter- I'm interested to see what's going to happen with the new Compass because the Compass is stepping right on the toes of the Cherokee. Uh, it's such an upgrade. It looks fantastic in pictures. I'm sure in yeah, I've, really I've seen impression. it
3: at a couple of auto shows now, and it's it's a good looking vehicle.
2: Yeah, and it's about the right size. It's about the right price. Um, yeah. Now they've got they've got some vehicles like right on top of each other. You know, but certainly the Renegade is still there for the people who want that tiny thing. But you go. You go Compass Cherokee, Grand Cherokee. Those are they're all within a pretty close distance of each other. So,
3: yeah, we'll see. And, how that and you know, they'll have a new Wrangler coming not too far down the road as well.
2: Yeah. Yeah. The world is on the edge of its seat for that. <laughs> and in the meantime, we should do some stories. So you are out in uh, California because you're you're talking to uh, autonomous vehicle folks but it, uh just recently you posted a piece on on the Navigant blog as well about Ford investing in Argo.
3: Right. Uh, so yeah, I'm 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 out here um to speak tomorrow at the uh, Autonomous Vehicle Silicon Valley Summit in Santa Clara and I've had the chance to sit down with a few different people over the last couple of days uh and get some thoughts and um on the way on the way back from the Chicago Auto Show a couple of weeks ago. Um uh, News came out while I was on the train uh, that uh, Ford was "quote unquote" investing a billion dollars in this startup called Argo.ai, which uh, is after you know I, I got on the the call that they did uh, with uh, CEO Mark Fields and uh, CTO Raj Nair, uh, where they they described uh, what they were doing, and it's. Uh, they, they aren't they aren't actually paying out a billion dollars up front, you know, for this company that's only existed for about four months prior to that's the probably, deal.
2: Yeah, that's probably smart. Yeah.
3: Um, yeah. <laughs> what, you know, effectively what Ford is actually doing uh, with this is they're they're doing kind of a, a corporate restructuring um, of part of their engineering team, because w- one of the issues that uh, Ford and, and every other traditional automaker has had is trying to recruit, especially software engineers, you know, all the software engineers want to go to Silicon Valley and work for some startup, you know, where they're getting some stock options. And, you know, chances are the startup is going to go belly up before it ever gains any success. But, um, you know, every once in a while, just like with the venture capitalists that are putting all the money into these startups, you know, one of them becomes a hit and, you know, because they, you know, what they end up, what they the way they usually work is they underpay their engineers in cash up front, but they give them a bunch of stock options. And then if they find somebody to buy them out, you know, or they get a big uh, a big IPO, then these guys all get rich on their on their stock options. Uh, Ford and other traditional companies can't really do that, you know, because you know their stocks have been going nowhere for years, so you know, paying somebody stock options, um, is just, you know, it's not going to be a viable option to try to recruit people and they can't really, you know, go and throw huge bundles of cash at these guys either because, you know, they've got, you know, tons of other employees that, you know, say, Hey, what about me? Why am I, where's
2: where's my bundle of cash? Exactly.
3: So what they've done is this company Argo AI that was, uh, started by a couple of guys. One came from, um, one came from uh, Google and uh, where did the other guy come from? I can't remember now. I'm
2: from Waymo? Well, uh, Google is Waymo. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, there was another who was working on with Uber. Oh, I, yeah. I so what?
3: Yeah. So one guy from Uber, one guy from from Waymo. Um, and they, you know, they left and they, they started Argo AI. And um, so what Ford is doing is they're committing to a billion dollars over five years. And uh, they're, you know, they're probably going to pay out, you know, a couple hundred million uh, effectively up front. Uh, and then based on their performance over the next few years, you know, they'll they'll keep putting more money in. And for that, um, Ford is going to get a majority stake in Argo AI. They won't own it outright, but they will get a majority stake in it. The founders, you know, obviously get a an equity share. And then they're setting aside a bunch of the stock in this company uh, to give stock options to the employees, and you know, since this company has only existed for a few months, what you know, and you know, the question was asked, why you know, what what have these guys got you know, since they you know just got started, that is so important that you know uh, you need it for your autonomous system, which. That seems to already be working pretty well.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's that was my question, too, is like Ford's been working on this. They've they've got a car that's supposed to be in production in like four years. And so this is almost like a a vote of no confidence in their internal team,
3: except for the fact that what they're doing is they're essentially transferring all of their internal team over to Argo AI, um, where they will continue doing the work that they're doing. And, you know, in addition to their salaries, they'll get some stock options in Argo AI and Good for them. And they also will have, you know, the Argo AI, because they have the ability to pay stock options, will be able to will hopefully have a better chance of recruiting, you know, some of these engineers from Stanford and Carnegie Mellon and other places that would have otherwise be going to other Silicon Valley startups um, and, you know, bring those guys in to help the effort. Uh, So there it's not so much that Argo has any particular technology that's of any value, but it's just it's it's just a a corporate restructuring mechanism that'll that will hopefully help forward to recruit some more engineers that they need to finish this project.
2: Well, that has been an issue, too. I mean, first of all, you've got the talent that they're highly sought after and. Uh, they're kind of playing the lottery, right, with the, the whole idea of like, well, OK, fine, I'll, I'll take a little bit smaller salary, but this looks really promising and I'm going to get a huge pile of stock options and they've got venture capital. So at a certain point, they're going to float an IPO. I mean, look what Snap's doing today, uh, you know, uh, at a, that a point, company that
3: has has no profits and is valued is going to be valued at twenty four billion dollars tomorrow.
2: Yeah, which is and it's the same as Uber. Like it's, it's yeah. just a stupid amount of valuation for a company that does nothing. Um, but they have a platform and the platform is, you know, great, <laughs> fine, whatever they, they can say that they can monetize advertising and whatever. Uh, it, this is like, this is actually developing a real product and, uh, you know, you're not, they're not, necess- they're not in the Valley. So I feel like that's probably part of an in Pittsburgh. So, yeah. I mean,
3: <laughs> although, you know, mo- most of the engineering team, you know, the engineering team that's shifting over from. Ford engineering to Argo AI um, are going to stay in Dearborn.
2: Well, and the thing that I noticed about it, too, was that Ford Ford is really good at, at being Ford. You know, they're really good at the car stuff. Um, what we've seen from some of these other companies that are trying to get into developing autonomous vehicles is that they're good at the autonomous stuff. They're not good at the car stuff, and they've realized that. I mean, that's why they're partnering now with all, all you know, a bunch of manufacturers. But you know, it, even with Google developing their own cars, it was like, well, that's they got a steep, steep learning curve there,
3: right? Know, which is like, which kind of gets us into. Uh, you want to jump into the next story, um, John McElroy's column?
2: Yeah, I mean, it was an interesting thought starter, uh, and I think in the short term he's correct, but I think in the long term it's anybody's guess. And I just, I, you know, I was wondering what your, your thoughts on it were, I guess. This, so the premise is that, uh, you know, that the, the headline of the article was the race for autonomous cars is over and Silicon Valley lost, you know, because basically um, you had the companies that can out, you know, go out there and say like, yeah, we can out innovate the automakers. Sure. That's fine. But the automakers can out automaker you. Uh, <laughs> which is is really key when you're trying to develop cars and so they've gotten on the ball and they've they've realized that uh y- you know if you're going to put this technology in a car you're going to wind up basically as a uh you know supplier and automakers squeeze their suppliers and they develop their products with suppliers and it's, it's just it's been in the learning curve for companies like uh google and apple to figure out how it actually works um when they're they're building an, an automobile but um i'm not sure sh- i'm not sure that the the you know the full-on story is is out maybe in the short term you know gm releasing uh they continuing to, to refine and release, you know, stuff like the Bolt and, and you know, then their autonomous tech and everything. Uh, yeah, they're going to do good in the short term. I think that the the Detroit automakers are going to have a real good run with it. But in the long term, I, I feel like it's going to balance out.
3: Yeah, well, first, you know, first thing I would say is, you know, the, the headline on John's column, uh, you know, that the race is over, it, the race is far from over.
2: I uh, think that was on purpose. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the race,
3: you know, it's the race is actually just barely beginning. Um, but that said, um, I, I do agree that at this point in time, the, uh, the traditional auto industry is actually ahead in many respects and they will, I think that they will likely, um, end up winning to a degree, um, you know, I, I don't think they're going to stomp all over the the tech industry. You know, I think um, of the of the the Silicon Valley companies. You know, I think the the one that's in the best shape and you know is going to is best positioned for some success is Waymo. Um, you know, because they're they're doing a lot of the right things. You know, as, as you know as John says in the story, they're or in his column, they're not. Um, you know, they have backed away from building their own cars. And, uh, you know, I don't know how serious they ever really were about actually getting into the car, manufac- the full on car manufacturing business. You know, they they have refocused their efforts on the autonomous driving stack. You know, so the whole thing, the software, the processing, the sensing, uh, all of that piece of it. And then also um, the services around that. And I think that part is the key to what's going to be, you know, that's going to be the key to success in the autonomous race is the companies that can both um, build the hardware and the software, you know, the the autonomous driving system, uh, but also do the vertical integration to provide the mobility services. uh, Because, you know, I think, a lot of these vehicles for the foreseeable future are going to be, they're going to be very expensive, but, um, more importantly, you know, there's a lot of things that still aren't resolved around, um, the legal liabilities for the performance of these systems, you know, you know, if there's, if there's any issues, you know, if they, you know, and they will get into crashes from time to time uh, they'll probably crash, crash a lot less than human drivers, but you know, they will have problems and you know, there somebody is going to have to be liable for the mistakes that these systems make. And, you know, also um, you know, in order to maintain these, you know, to keep these vehicles running properly, you know, they need to be maintained with the right parts. They need to be serviced properly. Um, and, you know, they need to be kept up to date. And when you sell vehicles to consumers, you cannot guarantee that. I mean, you know, anybody that's you know seen companies, car makers try to do uh, recalls, try to get people to bring their cars in to get them fixed for recalls, knows how hard it is to get consumers to get their vehicles serviced, even when they don't have to pay for it. Uh, so, you know, car makers are, You know, everybody that's in the autonomous space is going to want to retain control of most of these vehicles internally. And the way they can do, you know, the one way they can do that, you know, make sure that they are maintained properly is to own them and, and provide, you know, be vertically integrated to provide the services. Uh, You know, and they, I think the only part that, Waymo, at least for the, for, for the time being is staying away from is actually making the vehicle platform, you know, they're going to partner with somebody to provide vehicle platforms that they will put their systems into and then provide, provide mobility services that, you know, run the gamut, you know, from small, um, you know, one or two person pod cars up through larger vehicles and maybe even commercial vehicles for, for cargo.
2: I'm just I mean, I'm kind of surprised that that Waymo just didn't like buy Mitsubishi. <laughs> they could have just gotten the whole thing. Maybe that wasn't the right product for them. Yeah, I, th- uh, I think I think that's that's
3: probably the right answer there. You know, but I,
2: you know I, I, I see another issue with this stuff that. So there's some things that just haven't been solved yet, Uh, how they're going to share the road, like we talked about, who's going to be liable, but also like data and privacy. Like we've seen, you know, Uber employees talking about how they've used the data that the platform collects to sort of snoop on people Um, on the flip side of that. Uh, and john notes this too is that you know chevrolet collected over 4000 terabytes of data from customers cars you know that's that's your trips that's yeah, where that's, you're I mean, that, going when you're going
3: that's a huge that's going to be a huge business going forward is data services i mean you know as part of my job as an analyst with navigant uh, last last year we published a report that i wrote on data services for automotive applications that you know was all about you know what what john talks about here uh, which is, you know, with all this data that's generated by cars and, you know, increasingly, you know, cars are have are going to have standard telematics systems uh, that can transmit all kinds of telemetry data back to the manufacturers. You know, there's there's an opportunity there to make money off of off of that data um, or, you know, to use that data in a variety of ways. I mean, one one way that they, they definitely do it is for product development. You know, so they, they gather information about how the vehicles are used, um, you know, where they're used and that gets fed into their product development process for generating future iterations of the cars. You know, so one, one example, uh, of that, you know, is with the Chevy Volt, you know, there were, when the second generation Volt came out a couple of years ago, you know, there were a lot of questions about why did GM not put in support for, um, DC fast charging on the thing? Well, you know, the, their answer was that, you know, they looked at the data from the first generation Volt and they realized that, you know, more than three quarters of Volt customer, you know, Volt buyers didn't even bother getting a level two, you know, 240 volt charger. You know, they just used a 110 volt charger because, you know, with the size of the battery in there, they could charge it overnight. Yeah. And because it was a, a you know, plug-in hybrid, uh, you know, they, they could drive it around as well. Uh, so they, they didn't need the 240 volt charging. So, you know, they, they said, well, why should we why should we put that extra complexity and cost into the vehicle when people aren't going to use it anyway? Uh, and so a, that, I mean, that's a, that's a perfect argument, yeah, <laughs> I mean, you know, and, and, but you know, that's, that's the kind of argument that they could back up based on the, the, the telemetry data that they had from the vehicles, from the way customers use the vehicles. So there's all kinds of things like that, you know, and they're, they're starting to do predictive diagnostics, uh, you know, we're based on, you know, data that's collected from millions of vehicles. They can, they can see patterns that um, are precursors to various types of component or system failures. And so now, you know, they can monitor the telemetry data from vehicles and predict uh, when something uh, is going to fail before it does and then provide an alert to the driver and say, hey, we see patterns of performance in the vehicle that indicate, you know, for example, your battery is going to need to be replaced in the next month or two. Uh, you know, would you like us to schedule a service appointment for you so you can get your battery replaced? And
2: I can just imagine the usefulness of that kind of thing to an advertiser as well. Oh, oh, and absolutely. Way, and, you know, uh,
3: you, you, know send, you, 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 <laughs> you send the person to to their local dealer and, right. you know, then, you know, the, the GM gets a like an affiliate fee or a lead generation fee uh, when yeah. that customer goes into the dealer for for that service.
2: I mean, it's it's creepy as hell. And it makes me glad that I have a dumb car. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> on the but, other hand, but, but look at it I, from look know. at it from the perspective of, you know, would you rather get an alert a couple of weeks before your battery dies and needs to be replaced and go in and fix it and get it get it repaired? Or would you rather be stranded on the side of the road?
2: So are we talking Dan, the anachronism or Dan putting himself in the shoes of the normal person?
3: uh let's um, go with the latter the the normal okay. person
2: yes i would i know what dan the
3: anachronism would say
2: well yeah I, i'll get i'll get to that but the, <laughs> the the average person isn't paying enough attention to the car they, they probably wouldn't mind getting getting an, a note and and you know what hey give them a 10 percent discount on a battery you know
3: yeah and, and you like know you I mean, the, those are the kinds of things they can do you know and then you know gm gets a a cut of the the um the transaction, you know, same kind of thing, you know, Ford last year, introduced Ford pass, you know, and they're going to be providing all kinds of services through that. Uh, You know, one of the, one of the things they're doing is parking. So they're working with parking providers so that uh, people using Ford pass, when they need to find a parking space, they can, you know, as more parking providers uh, keep track of, you know, where spaces are available um, and doing partnerships with Ford, um, you know you can use the ford pass app that's built into sync excuse me to find where there's a parking lot or a garage with a, a, an available parking space reserve that parking space and pay for it you know before you even get there you know through through the car and then you know they're not doing it yet but you know eventually you know ford will get a cut of that or, you know, usage-based insurance, you know, currently, you know, you go to your insurance company, you know, most insurance companies now will give you a little OBD2 dongle that you plug into your car to get a yep. discount on your insurance if you, if you're a, a good driver. Well, if you've got the the telematics data, you don't need to plug in that dongle. You can just, the insurance companies can just get that information directly from the manufacturers.
2: Yeah. I mean, I'm surprised that so I guess at this point, the insurance thing is you have to opt in. But I, I feel like at a certain point, there's going to be a clause in your insurance that just says, you know, uh, given your car's year, make, model, uh, you have to opt out or we're going to go to the manufacturer. We're going to pay them the fee and we're going to get.
3: Well, your, and that's and that's one of the things know, when
2: onboard I, OBD information, you know, when
3: I, when I when I did the when I did the research for this report, uh, I talked to most of the manufacturers and all of them. And, you know, through the. Uh, Alliance of automobile manufacturers and the global association of global automakers, you know, they've, they've got a policy. um, They've got privacy policies set up for vehicle data. um, You know, and one of, one of the things that pretty much all the manufacturers said was that the car owner, the vehicle owner owns the data that's generated by the car. They, the car makers consider themselves stewards of that data. And, you know, they, you know, as part that's, of your, that's agreement,
2: weird because they consider you, the, but they consider the software in the car or, or like, the, you know, right to, that runs completely counter to right to repair.
3: Well, that, yeah, that's, that's a different story. So, you know, I mean, the data that's generated by the car is different from, you know, the software that's running on the car, uh, you know, so they, you know, they want to control the software that's running on the car, but the data that's generated about your usage of the car, you own that data. Um, and before they can share it with third parties, you have to opt in. Um, now consider, you know, go back to what I was saying earlier about mobility services operated by manufacturers that own these autonomous vehicles. Once we shift over to that environment of mobility services, where you don't own a car anymore, you just, you know, pay for a subscription or pay per ride or per mile or however, you know, however the the pricing models get worked out. Now the manufacturers own that data. Um, and so they can do whatever they want with it because they are the vehicle yeah. owners.
2: I, I mean, I can see the upside for it. Um, you know, it, it, even with like, if they're selling that insure that to something like an insurance company well the insurance company can you know if, if they're not getting personally you know almost like hipaa um, if they're not getting personally identifiable data uh, they it'll help them at least adjust their 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 risk pool saying like everything oh, yeah. with the Camaro that's red um, that's this trim level you know we think they're this kind of risk so in the end the consumer may get a benefit from it or uh you know, things, things may actually adjust uh, against you. (laughs) It's like if everybody with a red Z 28 crashes it, you're going to pay more for insurance. Well, and and to
3: a degree, I mean, that that's always been the case. I mean, you know, I mean, you you've always paid different premiums based on what kind of car you drive. You know, if you buy, you know, a V6 Mustang versus a V8 Mustang, you're going to pay more for a V8 Mustang than you will for the V6, you know, or if you drive a Camaro, you know with a a manual transmission versus an automatic you might pay more so i mean it's they're, they're part of the premium has always been based on the type of car you drive as well as your own personal demographics and your own personal history you know it's just now you know they can they have even more granularity because they can start to get data about specifically about what you do versus what the group that you fall into you know based on your your demographics and the type of vehicle you own um you know would say would say to them so if you've got someone who is a very careful driver of a mustang gt you know or a camaro ss you know they might get lower premiums than somebody you know who is you know drag racing from stoplight to stoplight in the same car
2: It'll be. I mean, it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting to see. I mean, I would like to see stuff get more integrated through the screens uh, that is are, are in every car. You know, if we can start to um, streamline all of those different services and where you can update and pay for things, even if they could build in like, uh, you know, um, a transponder to each car for the, the tolls. So you don't have to put something on the... Um, the windshield and you can just link it up with your account through the screen and and, and, yeah, and, I mean, and, and that's, payments and stuff like that's, that. That's
3: that's something you'll be able to do, you know, with with telematics um or or even potentially with uh V 2 V systems, vehicle to vehicle communications, uh or V to you know, Vita X, vehicle to external communications, uh, you know, that yeah. effectively becomes a transponder.
2: Yeah. So so it's it's coming. It'll be better.
3: And there's, you know, there's tens or hundreds (laughs) of billions of dollars in potential revenue for the manufacturers and and not just for the manufacturers, but for whoever is doing the providing the telematics services. You know, so you can have aftermarket services as well for cars that don't have it built in, you know, companies like Verizon and AT&T, you know, are and and T-Mobile are offering aftermarket telematics systems that you can plug into your car. And you know, all of those can collect data that they can generate additional revenues off of. But particularly for the car makers, you know, they they you know they they're looking out you know and seeing a world you know where if everybody, especially in cities, you know, if the majority of people are riding around in autonomous cars that they don't drive, you know, it's likely that we're going to see a a decline in total vehicle sales. You know, starting you know by the by the late twenty twenties, and at that point. You know, they need to get revenues somewhere else. So they're looking for these kinds of recurring revenue streams.
2: Yeah, they'll figure it out. Um, They're they're getting there. Uh, We want to do a palate cleanser because when you were in um, Chicago, you recorded an interview with uh, Robert Davis from um, Mazda, North America. And it sounds like it was pretty interesting. Uh, You guys talked a bunch of stuff like uh, Diesel Sky Active and HCCI and. Autonomy and, and more. Um, so, and we have one more topic that we can tee up after that. It's, it's more of a rant than a topic. So, <laughs> if we want to do a, a palate cleanser, we can listen to that interview and, and then come back. Anything you wanted to say before we, we go to it?
3: No, let's just uh, play the interview. Uh, I think uh, you guys will find it interesting. Um, and then uh, at the end, we've also got uh, one reader question that we put off from our listener question we put off from last week.
2: Nice. All right. Uh, we'll go to that. We'll come back
4: all right
2: robert good to see you again
5: so uh what i wanted to talk about today was uh fuel economy fuel, fuel economy strategies going forward you know mazda obviously you know, has been a leader in that space um you know in part at least you know because of the nature of your product lineup you know um you don't do big trucks um so that's that helps but um the, certainly over the last half dozen years or so last ten years uh, you know I think a big part of what's helped the company is a real focus on the fundamentals you know, uh, you haven't done a lot in terms of really exotic technologies but it, it's been you know really getting down and doing fundamental stuff lightweighting you know good good structural design lightweight um, you know good fundamental design of engines and transmissions for thermal efficiency Going forward, um, you know, how far can that can that take Mazda, and what do you see as next steps for Mazda? I and mean, there's been some some recent reports uh, about uh, Mazda introducing uh, next generation Skyactiv as an HCCI engine. Uh, I don't know how much you can talk about that, but what okay. what do you see you know going forward for Mazda?
4: Well, I mean, you know, kind of going back to your earlier point, we we saw in 2009 real reason that we had to make a change. We had to change basically everything that we do to meet the challenge not only of the US requirements but the global requirements. And that's where Sky Active just kind of a backstory. Sky Active was developed from a kind of a terminology that we talked about the sky is the limit. And we were we told our uh, engineering and advanced product development people to to quit Quit saying or quit believing things like you, could, you can't have high power and high fuel economy. You can't have very strong and very light. You know, there's, there's conventional um, uh, contradictions that just need to be broken, and you need to think differently. So what they went about doing is creating a whole new generation of cars, and that's the cars that are around here now, what we call the sixth generation of cars that are developed differently, manufactured differently, and retailed and marketed differently. And that's where we've gotten to be, where we're the the best fuel economy in the U.S. four years in a row, with five in the bag, and I would probably say six is going to be pretty easy to predict, too. So all that was built around... Before you go to electrification before you add the gizmos and the, and the sophisticated things get the base get the base done right first so get the gasoline or diesel manual or automatic transmission along with the whole the, the development of the vehicle done right the first time. Then when you add electrification or any options to it it'll improve it even that much more. So that's where we're at and that's where we uh, will then take the next step to our second generation of sky active vehicles we can't talk that much about it we'll be talking in a lot more detail with you guys this summer about it as we approach um, the first kind of introductions of our uh, seventh generation products but, but basically it, it's continues on that but the least believe strongly the environment and the CO2 and all the things, safety, environment, CO2, corporate compliance, shouldn't be a single vehicle. So it shouldn't be that that Model Z over there with a the hybrid. It should be all the vehicles. And if you look at our full product lineup in America, all of them are, I think I'm safe to say, they're all in the top three in fuel economy. So it's not about having, hey, Jeremy, you've got extra income, so therefore you're allowed to buy a hybrid Camera? No. Every Mazda 6 is fuel efficient. Every Mazda 6 executes at a high level and is responsible. So the next generation of, of technology for gasoline engines, and you asked a question, how much more do you think it's good? We think it's easily 30%. Out of the fundamental technologies? Yep. 30% before adding, before adding electrification. And when we look at engine internal combustion both gas and diesel so we think there's that much opportunity left there and this is where we've been talking to the regulators we think in using japan as an example japan in the next five years is going to improve their electric generation efficiency by 20 percent which is awesome Unfortunately, all that 20% efficiency is going to get taken up in the transportation sector because the government's mandating electric vehicles. Our position is, listen, tell us the end game. Give us the target. Let us supply the, all the technology sources that we've got to reach the target. And don't put an artificial barrier in the middle that says you've got to have some percentage electric. Because what... No engineer has told me yet that he can't get to the number for California in 2025 with, it, 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 that he's got to have electric. I don't know what I don't know yet, in other words. So let the tech, let let the industry run with the technology. I mean, when Kennedy said we will send a man to the moon and back safely by the end of the decade, he didn't say, oh, yeah, you had to use a... Kerosene lantern and you know black powder. <laughs> right. He let the scientists. Stay, stay, stay technology agnostic. Set, right. set set a goal that you want to get to, but don't
5: don't prescribe how you get there.
4: Right, and that's my big challenge with California is because I tell I tell them, listen, we breathe the same air as you. Mm-hmm. There's not car company air here and ARB air here, and we all remember from the 70s and in the San Fernando Valley. I remember as a kid flying into the airport and seeing the red-brown air. So, so what you're trying to do, we're not against. Just quit messing in the middle. Give me, Let me use every piece of technology I can to get to the end game. There's other people and other things that you can go regulate. You don't need to regulate this. Okay. We can get there. So... Um, in terms of
5: you, know, you talk about 30 percent, you think you can still get out of internal combustion engines you know, before you start getting into heavy electrification? Would that would that uh, include things like any, any sort of light electrification? You already do the IE loop, um,
4: but you know the... no, we think that's the base technology. Okay. So the light electrification is everything is additive. Okay. And at 30 percent improvement, that's that's well the wheel equivalent to electric today. Okay. I mean so. It's hard to, you know, you can argue the EMPG whether it's right or not, but at 70 miles per gallon on a, on a conventional car that burns gasoline or diesel, that's pretty freaking darn good.
5: Yeah. Uh, so, how, how much of that 30% would depend
4: on utilization of diesel as opposed to gas engines? Well, there's... The studies I've seen from our engineering group shows that uh, conventional gasoline has more opportunity to grow than diesel, but they both still have uh, opportunity. And then what, we're, you know, we're going to bring the diesel in the CX-5 this summer, mm-hmm. and we still see opportunity in the U.S. I mean, we don't think the Volkswagen situation, as tragic it is, as it is, has that much impact into the U.S. public. We think that's a little bit too much inside baseball. We see TDI owners as being very loyal to TDI, and diesel buyers being very loyal to diesel. And it also improves our brand image. Okay. Um,
5: Do do you foresee um, expanding diesel availability, perhaps to the CX-9 or to other models within your lineup? Well, I'll
4: say not to the CX-9, because the CX-9 is too big for—we only have one diesel, Mm 2.2-liter turbo diesel— I can't. I can't. Uh, I can't uh, comment on other stuff. Sorry. Okay. Um,
5: as far as electrification, um, obviously, you know, your preference would be, as uh, you said, you know, for a technology agnostic approach uh, to meeting the standards. But uh, right now, that's not the, the reality. So you are going to have to do some electrification. Sure. And, um, do you? Uh, do you see that you know for for Mazda you know given the size and the volumes you have um are you going to be able to do that with plug-in hybrids or are you going to have to do battery electrics
4: or some combination of the two well I think the 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 solution will be a combination and I just don't think anybody is going to be able to do it just one way and and that always goes back to the the conversations we've all had the answer to this is not one silver bullet and that's what really frustrates us a lot of the government agencies think that's just that battery electric hybrids are the, the silver bullet and they're just not you Right. Know, you don't wipe away 110 years worth of uh, industry in, in one swell swoop and say okay everybody it's now time for battery. Was talking about is you forget the other infrastructure that's got to happen. The electricity doesn't just come out the wall, right? Mm-hmm. It's you know, we all just think that we've been conditioned to that. But where we live, we get notifications on our cell phone to turn off your air conditioner when it's 105 degrees because they don't have enough generating power. So I don't know that the, it's fully been worked through on how, if, if the public and the OEMs made it to the 15 percent penetration or exceeded it by 2025, where's the power? Right. We were chatting with someone this morning who
5: suggested that off-peak hours have adjusted to between 2 and 5 p.m. now in Southern California. Well, previously off-peak is now just as much demand as during the well, day. Well, but it's also during the day because the, the overnight where well, there wasn't much happening is now so loaded. Mm-hmm. The, the, so the people that charge at home charge at home overnight. People that charge at the office plug in at 8.30, 9 o'clock in the morning, and their cars are fully charged by one thirty or 2 o'clock in the afternoon. So between the time that the daytime chargers are done charging and before the nighttime chargers start charging. Yeah. So now you've just got all these paradigm shifts to get around um, what about? Um, I mean, you know, obviously, driving you know, as as part of Mazda's philosophy. You know, uh, you know driving matters. You know, um, people who people who uh, buy Mazdas you know, like to drive, uh, and you know, certainly I like to drive. But um, you know, we're we're seeing this strong movement towards adoption. of, automation. Um, you know, you've got you've got a lot of ADAS features in your in your new models, which is, is good. And, you know, I think that's a very helpful uh, thing. But um, do you do you foresee um, participating at least in the in the near to midterm in in the, the automation
4: ecosystem, you know, the, the autonomous ecosystem? Well I mean it's where you draw the line on autonomy, right? You know, full autonomy, you know, with no no driver input, you know, the a car with just a seat in it, I would say firmly, no, you know, that's not our deal. That's in our, in our mind that you hit it already, the driving does matter and that we feel the, the the best computer in a car is the human brain. Now that doesn't stop us from applying different technologies to keep that person in that car out of danger, either known danger or danger due to air in judgment or distraction. So, for example, the CX-5 has radar cruise control that will now go to zero and resume. Mm -hmm. So that's either making driving easier for you when you're stuck in bumper-to-bumper traffic, which for guys like us is incredibly infuriating, Mm -hmm. you know, and makes it easier, or avoids the crash. Right. But so we'll, we'll, we'll take we're taking technology to help the driver. Our, our approach is still very human-centric. Um, we're not interested in developing um, cars that are just the most comfortable seat, or who can build the box with the two best lazy boys in it. It's, so um, it's just not where we want to go. Um, and and. We still think there's a there's plenty of us still left in the world.
5: Yeah, and I think there probably will be for some time to come. Yeah. Um but as far as supporting the business you know, there's there's some companies like Waymo, for example, um, that you know they're interested in partnering with OEMs. You know, t- they, what they've told me is that you know, they, don't, they don't necessarily want to get into the business of building cars, but they're interested in partnering with OEMs that could provide vehicle platforms for them to integrate their their systems onto and use for mobility services. Um, they should is, call checker. Yeah. Well, I, I was going to ask you – know, I mean, my, my question was – Something like as, as a partnership like that with a company like Waymo or Uber or you know other companies that are involved in the mobility business, um, would Mazda be interested in working with companies like that at least to provide vehicle platforms for them to use?
4: Well, it's tough to say because really right now our business is managed around capacity. So to take that capacity out of the dealer network and out of the retail network and put it into that kind of fleet activity would not would not be very appealing. Um, You know, we had a shift this year with the U.S. business being down. We shifted that production from the U.S. to China uh, because overall, globally, we have a capacity of 1.55 million cars and. So there's no real reason to do that. Mm-hmm. Would there ever be a reason? Would I ever say no? No. But right now, it's not a, it's not high on our priority list. It's just the same reason why we don't sell cars to Hertz. Or sure. to Avis. We sell a little bit to keep the relationship going, but much smaller percentage than the big mass market competitors. Remember, we're trying to take Mazda into a... Legitimate alternative to establish premium. Mm-hmm. And we just don't think that, you know, selling in mass to those type of mobility providers supports that goal. Okay. All right. Well, I think
5: that's all the questions I had. I appreciate your time very oh, much. Yep, good. Great
2: talk I guess coming off an interview with Mazda, my biggest question is what are your feelings about them uh, staying independent? Uh, or do you think that they're like, as they develop all of this, this technology, because it seemed like they're kind of on a, a tear to be pretty aggressive about developing stuff. Are they doing that to make themselves an attractive sale?
3: Um, I wouldn't say that they're trying to make themselves an attractive sale to another car maker. I think they're trying to make themselves an attractive sale to consumers. Um, you know, they're, they're trying to trying to create a unique value proposition, you know, create, create products that are going to be appealing to consumers you know in their own right um you know and uh, you know i personally find their cars very appealing uh you know i i love driving mazdas and um you know i think well, they are canadian
2: still, right <laughs> yeah whatever i'm sorry
3: uh, <laughs> <laughs> no i mean canadian you
2: know, Can- canadians love mazdas
3: yeah mazdas are fun cars to drive no they are
2: i actually i really like them too and, and, and i love I'm the way worried. they look too uh, if I were a car company, though, I might be worried like, oh, boy, the enthusiasts like us, we're screwed. <laughs> yeah.
3: <laughs> well, you know, I mean, the, 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 thing, the thing you'll notice, you know, is that they're, they're starting, they're trying to shift the brand a little bit more upmarket, you know, so that, you know, it's not like they're trying to necessarily compete with, you know, premium brands. But they're trying to find a, a kind of a middle ground, you know, to, to have a little bit more of a premium feel um you know above you know the the mainstream you know ford and chevy and honda and toyota you know so be just just that you know kind of one notch up there um you know which you know if they can do that if they can succeed um you know that can hopefully help their margins a little bit keep them profitable and and be sustainable you know at you know i mean they you know they sell about a million and a half vehicles a year globally um you know and Certainly, you know, it's it's not unreasonable that you should be able to, you know, have a, a profitable business with those kind of volumes. Uh, and, you know, hopefully they can hopefully they can succeed in doing it.
2: Yeah, it's just when you're a global automaker, a million and a half is just I mean, that's that's not that much. So,
3: yeah, you know, um, and at least at least for the foreseeable future, you know, they, they want to focus on cars that that people actually drive and not and not just drive, but actually enjoy driving. Um, you know, so, you know, they're not, they're not going hardcore sports cars, but, you know, they, they definitely, um, you know, want cars that will be a pleasure to drive. And, you know, it's interesting, you know, the, the tagline you find, you know, when you, when you look at new Mazdas, you know, on the license plate frames, you know, it says it's, it's not, they're not using the zoom zoom anymore. It's driving matters. Hmm. So.
2: Well, I agree. They make cars that are nice to drive. The the new CX-9 is, is pretty spiffy.
3: They're and you know, they're nice to be in, you know, really yeah. really good feeling interiors, well laid out. You know, if they would just add Android Auto, be perfect.
2: Um sure that that's probably for next year. So yeah. They'll, they'll have it. Eventually I mean, you know they're going to have it at some point. Uh all right. So, the last thing I wanted to get to before we get to the listener email that we skipped last week was um Just I wanted to revisit my feeling that we should at least be acting as if we're having an energy crisis. A a few episodes ago, I decided to put forth my crackpot theory that we should just have another energy crisis because, um, you know, energy is very cheap right now. And I feel like we're uh, we're not really paying attention to conserving, not necessarily just oil, but just developing a better way to to do things there are alternatives anyway because you know the truth is even if oil natural gas and other fuels are inexpensive and supply is abundant at the moment that doesn't mean we're not actually already in an energy crisis it just may not be a, a constrained supply um you know kind of what i'm getting at here is uh permafrost is disappearing glaciers are melting so you mean the- it's not permanent anymore right exactly it like it was permanent for 10,000 years so, so like, oh boy yeah it is an energy crisis it's just not the energy crisis you may think it's you know warming is pretty clearly going on at least you know over the last however many years we've got the data to back it up we're you know, we're recording the warmest years over the last 3 or 4 years on record um, and so don't confuse weather with climate either you know local effects of climate change are weather for sure. But those are those are like symptoms. So as the climate warms, we may actually have more ferocious winters where I get a lot more snow and I get nasty temperatures and stuff. But that's because the energy crisis we're facing is that we're, we're releasing long stored energy and carbon back into a system that is unstable by its nature. And it's it's chaos. You know, weather uh, weather is na- a, a, it's 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 a chaotic system. That's why they need to use supercomputers to model and predict is there's just too many variables and data points you you can't you can't accurately model that um so there's you know that's that's why forecasting is not totally accurate either um so we're i feel like we're already in an energy crisis and this was sort of brought on because i read a uh, a new post at um climate news.org um and there was a piece of research by the Northwest Territories geological survey where they found 52,000 square miles in the Northwest Territories that are affected pretty drastically uh, by permafrost decay. So um, yeah, I, I don't know. Does, know, and, does it, it seem like less of a crackpot theory now?
3: <laughs> no, I, I, hey, I, I never said it was a crackpot theory. Um, you know, and you know, the thing about the, that air, that region, you know, with the, the permafrost, you know, it's, it's an area that's been frozen since the last ice age and you know underneath all that ice there you know there was a lot of decaying organic matter you know that was that was also frozen you know and that's all that's all carbon matter and now that you know now that it's no longer sealed in by that ice by that by that layer of ice um, you know the decay has started again which means that the carbon is you know more carbon is getting released into the atmosphere yeah and the, the 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 thing you know i think the thing that we need to keep in mind is um you know we're not destroying the earth you know the earth was here has you know been here for four and a half billion years it'll probably be here for you know another between another four and five billion years until um you know the uh, the sun runs out of fuel and expands into a, a red giant um you know and swallows up the earth um
2: there's a happy but, thought, <laughs> yeah.
3: But you know, uh, I'm I'm pretty sure that um, you know that neither of us are going to be around uh, at that point, point. and you know the the Earth will survive long after humans have gone extinct. You know, countless species have existed and and gone into extinction. You know, in the last four billion years, and countless more will do the same going forward, and humans will probably be one of them. What you know, but if we want to extend our time, you know, before our probable extinction event, um, you know, we we need to be cognizant of what we're doing um, and not, you know, not take uh, um, it, not not take it for granted that, uh, you know, our actions have no consequences you know they they do have consequences um and you know while while the earth will will go on you know in some form and it'll go through its own cycles you know we we need to to do things you know to minimize our our own impact on it so that it remains habitable for our species for at least for the foreseeable future
2: yeah i mean it's kind of like before we wipe ourselves off the planet uh you know it save the planet really means just like save humanity. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like yeah, the
3: pla- like um, I said, the planet the planet will live until it's burned to cinders by the sun. Uh, but, yeah, and even know, then, it's just going
2: to be a really hot rock. Yeah, like, uh, and it's, it's not just the Northwest Territories, like all across the Arctic, the same thing is going on with the the permafrost uh, thawing, and, and you know, I mean, so you the know, Arctic the, is, the Arctic
3: sea- the Arctic Ocean, you know, is uh, you know it's warming at twice the rate of the right. rest of the oceans.
2: Yeah. And, and so what what does that mean though? You know, everything's really interconnected. So what that means is like a couple of degrees here and there may not seem like a big deal, but you've got all these interconnected systems and it, that's a huge deal. And when we're thawing out, uh, you know, all of this decaying organic matter and we're releasing, you know, silt and mud into streams that feed the ocean, well, those streams and rivers, now you've put all that, carbon in there that means just less oxygen which means that the vegetation dies because the light doesn't get through and the the fish die and right all kinds of others they can't breathe and then it hits the pacific and it's just you know it decreases plume out into the the ocean so it doesn't take much you know it it seems like it's really robust it's it's actually pretty fragile but what's the most fragile is us and so we're gonna have to adapt to it one way or another so uh you know weather and patterns change we're going to get more intense storms the untold effects i can't nobody can really predict uh, but most of the things i can imagine are bad uh if we're going to do this if we're going to make the jet stream shift around and get stronger and stuff might as well put a bunch of wind turbines up there to capture the energy <laughs> <laughs> you know if we're going to create deserts let's put solar farms in them i mean come on like uh you know, something's going to need to run the desalination plants after uh, we start purifying ocean water because we put too much shit in our groundwater. So that's my rant for now. All right. <laughs> enough, enough
3: of that stuff uh, for yeah. this week. Thanks. So- <laughs> so <laughs> last week, we, uh, we had an e- a listener email that we put off uh, from Ricardo um, asking us, love to hear our thoughts on uh, voice experience in the vehicle from the embedded nuance systems to brought in stuff like Google Now and Siri, things you hate about it, things you wish it would do, and things you wish, things you think it should never do. Um, Dan?
2: Uh, some of the voice systems are really good, actually. Uh, in, and it's not even that they're the newest. I actually pretty much, I like uh, Nissan's system, and maybe it's because I'm so familiar with it. The Uconnect system we've got in the Jeep, is it's a little older now, and it's not that great. I think the biggest issue with all of them, and they're getting better at this, is uh, they, they don't have casual language recognition. Some of them do, but that's a newer feature. They're getting feature. there, and, yeah. Yeah, once that starts to roll out more uh, you know across the board it'll be easier uh, but i think that that's a user-based thing too um once you start using the system and you learn the commands uh it becomes easier to f- to figure it out um you know some of them i've really fought with i just don't remember which so i i feel like i'm i'm falling down on that point uh but i i have been impressed for several years by nissan's system for sure um it just works.
3: Yeah. You know, and the thing is most of the, the embedded systems that you find in cars uh, today are powered by nuance. You know, they use nuances technology. Um, and the, the issue that, you know, we've had, you know, the, the issue that we've had with voice recognition systems up until now is that cars tend to have very limited amount of processing capability for stuff like that in the vehicle. Um, and, in order to make the systems as reliable as they can, the the engineers designing this stuff try to limit the vocabulary of, of words and commands that they can understand so that if you get at least close to it, you know, it, then it has a better chance of act of getting a correct recognition. So that's why, you know, you tend to have to remember very specific commands to do things because, you know, the, the system has a limited vocabulary. um, And, you know, when you start getting into, you know, new language has all kinds of nuance and there's so many different ways to say the same thing that to try to understand natural language is really hard. Uh, It takes a lot of, a lot of memory um, and a lot of processing power, which is hard to do in the vehicle and especially in the vehicle environment where you tend to have a lot of ambient noise and a lot of things going on around you. Uh, But what we're starting to see now is, you know, the Ricardo mentioned, you know, Google now and and Siri, you know, both of which are cloud-based systems. You know, when you say something to your phone uh, it, You know that the the whatever you say gets recorded and uploaded to the cloud uh and then you know masses of computers and data centers are the ones actually doing the processing and figuring out what words you said what what they mean in context with each other you know and trying to understand the meaning of the string of words that you said and then executing something um what uh, you know, what we're what we're gonna start seeing uh, in the next year or so is hybrid systems coming into cars because you can't always rely on that connectivity to the cloud. So these hybrid systems coming into cl- into the vehicles will have a cloud connection because as more and more cars have standard telematic systems in there, they'll be able to either use that or use your phone to send the information to nuances cloud or somebody else's cloud, do that voice recognition um, and then execute something. But then for those times when you don't have a reliable connection, there will still be a, a subset of that, you know, that will result be embedded in the car. And, you know, as you've got more powerful processing available in the car and newer vehicles, you know, it'll, it'll be able to do some of that, but not, not to the same degree that, you know, the full connected system can do.
2: Yeah, you know, I'm sure too. Some of it is just yes, you can do it. You can even do it within the car. It's just the cost of the processors to to do it too. It like you know again, building a car is a very cost intensive thing, and there's not a ton of profit. So yeah, if you want to pay a bunch extra for it, I'm sure they could make it work better. Um, the the biggest issue I have with most of them is you can't always figure out how to get help. You can't just press the button and be like help and get the like available commands are right um, that that would be fantastic then you'd be able to figure it out a lot quicker uh sometimes you hit help and it's like do you want me to dial 9 one you're like no dialing nine one one. You're like god damn it. <laughs> so, um, well you know it's funny you know, it's funny, it's, you know with when, systems that have better go ahead
3: uh, I was, I think we're, we got a little uh, timing issue there with, uh, with Skype tonight. I think, you know, one, one of the, um, one of the interesting things bits of data that's come out of like some of the quality surveys and the initial quality surveys versus long-term quality surveys is they found that um, owners, you know, early on, you know, in the first few months of owning a vehicle tend to be much more frustrated with voice recognition systems and other technology and, what happens is over, you know, when they do the longer term quality studies or durability studies, um, they don't mark the stuff down as much because by that time, they've either figured out the limitations and learned to and adapted to them or else they've just given up on them entirely and they don't even care.
2: Yeah, we wind up not caring. (laughs) Um, like with the Jeep, it can can do more than we we actually ask it just because like when a phone call comes in, it's like phone call from blah, 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 blah. Do you want to answer? Can I please just answer the call? (laughs) Uh, You know, so it doesn't ring and then go to voicemail before I can answer it. So. Yeah. Yeah. They're figuring it out. It's getting better.
3: All right. Anything else for tonight or are we done?
2: I think we're done, especially since we're suffering with some, uh, hotel, uh, internet speed issues, but, uh, this is episode 16. We'll be back for episode, uh, 17 next week. Thank you for the survey results. That was uh, pretty interesting to read and to use to fine tune the podcast so that it meets with uh, more approval. Um, so keep, keep responses rolling in, send us emails, uh, find us on Facebook and Twitter and, uh, Wheelbearings.media. You can. That'll open the world to everything.
3: If and if if you, if you like the show, please tell all your friends, and uh, you know maybe uh, throw a review on iTunes or something. Even if you don't use iTunes, just go in there and, and uh, you know give us a five star review, and uh, hopefully you know more people will find us and uh, listen to us.
2: Yeah, I mean I'd I'd settle for a four star because I you know somebody no. wrote one of the comments on, was dude. crazy. Dan Roth makes me laugh. So <laughs> <laughs> I was like, all right. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take oh, okay it.
3: <laughs> all right we'll talk to you all next week
0: you know how to book flights and hotels all you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive that's why you need viator book guided tours activities excursions and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable